Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, I'm very excited today because we have, I would say, a rock star of research with us today, and it's Dr. Shuvo Roy. He has come up with a concept of creating an artificial kidney, and it's it's called the Kidney Project. And he is an engineer and professor at the University of California in San Francisco. And uh, I want to hear all about the, the Kidney Project and what is happening now. So welcome to the show, Thank you, Laurie. It's a pleasure to be with you and your audience. So tell us a little bit about the Kidney Project and what is this little artificial kidney that you're working diligently on so we don't people don't have to go to dialysis <laughs> three times a week. Sure. Happy to tell you about our work. So the bioartificial kidney is the goal of the Kidney Project, uh, which has been around for the last uh, decade or so when I first got uh, attuned to the challenges of people on patients on dialysis and then understanding that there are clearly not enough donor organs to go around Mm -hmm. and there's really nothing on the horizon that was curing kidney failure. So my colleagues and I thought what might be possible is to provide the benefits of transplant to the patients who are currently on dialysis, and as you very well know, the vast mm-hmm. majority of these patients do not get an organ. So the Kidney Project is developing a small device about the size of a small coffee cup that would be surgically implanted to function very much like a transplant. And the way we've gone about doing this is to bring state-of-the-art engineering along with the state-of-the-art in science of uh, kidneys and trying to integrate into something that's provide functional replacement. What I mean by that is that we're not trying to grow a kidney in a petri dish. We're not just trying to make a better dialysis machine. What I'm trying to do is to capture the key functions of the kidney using a combination of mechanical filtration, couple that with cell therapy. So the mechanical filtration is achieved in the first stage of the bioartificial kidney, and it's achieved using a new type of filtration membrane, the silicon nanopore membrane that we've developed in our lab uh, for the last 10 to 15 years. And this membrane has a number of advantages over existing dialyzer membranes in that it can operate without the need for electrical pumps. It does not require anticoagulation drugs. It does not uh, require much in the way of driving pressure so that we can actually run this off the body's own blood pressure. Well, I was going to say that the heart is the pump, right? (laughs) The heart is going to cause the blood to drive through the filter and generate the ultrafiltrate, which is where the toxins are moved away from the blood. Yeah, absolutely right. But that's not where we stop. So it's a mechanical filtration. Then we take the filtrate that comes out of this this component and direct it to a second stage we call the bioreactor. It's a fancy name for a little chamber 
that is lined with kidney cells that provide the functions of the tubule of the kidney and specifically the proximal tubule of the kidney, which is where much of the uh, reabsorption of water takes place in the natural kidneys. So by developing this two-stage system, we have an architecture that generates filtrate that consists of a lot of water, toxins, and salts, and glucose, and then take the material filtrate into the bioreactor where the cells drink back, if you will, or push the water back into the bloodstream so that the patient does not dehydrate and pushes back some of the salts to achieve balance, electrolyte balance, and, but does not push any of the toxins and basically creating the equivalent of urine that's directed to the bladder through a little tube. So we've got this, day, this, this filter, the bioreactor, and then a tube that goes and connects to the bladder that will become the output of our device. So that's what the bioartificial kidney is structured. And over the past decade or so, we've been working on all the engineering challenges to make this possible. Well, and I think uh, we just got a couple beeps, and I think people are trying to call you to get it. So snap, snap, okay? Because it sounds like it's needed right now. Um, of course it is. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is. And I have to, you know, uh, I, we are very attuned to the needs of the patient population. We want to go, at, we are trying to go as fast as possible. We do have some constraints. Constraints are that we have to make sure that we are building a device that's safe right, and works. Safe. And we have to go through a process that's very structured, given this is an implanted medical device that has to involve the regulatory bodies such as the FDA. Now, We've got a structured plan. Uh, we've got into the point where the mechanical filtration unit, we are in preclinical testing, and we can show that we can run the mechanical filtration just from the, uh, it, it not in, in preclinical testing in uh, pigs, where we use the pig's own blood pressure to drive the filtrate. And on the cell side, we've been able to culture or grow the cells on our device and show that they have maintained their functions over two months. Now, the next step is to actually show that the cells work also inside in an animal environment, like a pig, and combine the two units together. And that is the goal for this year and the next year or so. So it's like a pacemaker meets stem cells. Is that, I mean, I, I don't know, I'm just trying to visualize it, and they... They're getting together, and it's, you know, it's revolutionary. There's nothing out on the market like that, correct? Yeah, well, I, I actually like your uh, analogy there, pacemaker stem cells. The pacemaker is pretty, pretty much a synthetic, mechanical, electrical, completely manufactured, and then it, that, that's sort of how a filter is, and the cell therapy is based on, you know, cells, whether it's stem cells or other cells. So, yes, very much so. But by putting those two together, we achieve more of kidney function than dialysis does. Absolutely. And in a way, you've also hit on something else with the, by using the pacemaker analogy. So, pacemaker analogy is very apt for this purpose because what happens after a few years? You may need to change the battery in the pacemaker. So, you just change the battery, change the leads. That's, that's, how, and that's our vision for the artificial kidney. If we do need to change any parts, it should be like doing a change of 
of the changing of the leads or changing of the battery for the pacemaker. So there's more than one reason to sort of put the analogy to a pacemaker. And and so this this artificial kidney it regulates blood pressure it regulates you know the electrolytes. What about hormones? Uh, will you need still need EPO and some of the different hormone replacement? That's a great question. So the way I have been talking to my colleagues who work with me on this project is and is to first figure out what is it that patients really want. So having been to some of the kidney health initiative, ASN meetings, and talking to different patient advocacy groups at uh, American Association of Kidney Patients and Home Dialysis United, we've come up with a list of priorities. And the key priority right now is to get patients off dialysis. And for that, we, we said, let us think about what we can achieve in the short term, medium term, longer term. And we will Suddenly, with the, with the cells, provide vitamin D. So you'll actually, the cells will produce vitamin D. For EPO, it turns out that we'll rely with the first version of the device will not actually produce EPO. We'll rely on uh, exogenous um, injections for EPO. Now, it turns out uh, from many of the clinical trials that have, where they have looked at patients going frequent dialysis, the amount of EPO that's needed for those patients actually go down. So um, anticipating that the likely needs for EPO injections will be less than what a standard dialysis patient goes through, but for the first version, we will not actually be EPO independent. In subsequent versions, we will provide in the additional cell types to provide EPO or have a have like a little reservoir to uh, that can deliver EPO. Why is that? So as we talk to some of our patient uh, colleagues in different groups, the big need that we identified, and your your community may agree with this or may not, and they should let us know, is that to avoid the need for getting connected to a machine three times a week. Or wearing something that they have to carry a lot of dialysis or drink lots of extra fluids. So by the artificial kidney tries to address that goal right away, which is right. something that allows them to be mobile, eat and drink more normally. Uh, and once they have that, the quality of life, at least we hope, will be much bigger improvement than it is currently. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, I was on PD for nine years and in center and home hemo for you know four years three years four years i don't know it's 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 a haul and it's such a lifestyle change to be connected or rely on life support and i know several people with pacemakers they don't and i, and I want to equate it the same way you know they just live with it and it adapts with their life so i i'm in total agreement of that uh you know, having to drive, I mean, just a drive to dialysis is a, is a barrier to people. And if you're on home dialysis, sometimes it's a barrier because you don't have the space or you don't, you live with somebody or there's all kinds of things. So it, it's just not as invasive to your life. And, you know, you can go on and live the life you want. You just have a little implant. So um, I'm totally in agreement with that. I'm just, you know, just interested in all the little nuances and, and you you basically sold me on you can drink as much as you want. You're not as limited because that's a huge barrier and a lifestyle change. People are social drinkers. And so many years ago, um, when I was selling the Crit line, you know, one of my favorite products, uh, I was one of my clients was UC Davis. And 
they had dogs on dialysis and, you know, the dogs had nannies and, you know, it was expensive to dialyze a dog. But um, what's really interesting is the dogs didn't have a lot of fluid gain. And this always really, you know, intrigued me because, you know, it's always been a big issue uh, for many and sometimes myself, like, oh, my goodness, I, I drank too much fluid over the weekend. And it was it was because they could totally control the, the dog's diet and eliminate the salt so you weren't thirsty. But you try to apply that in real life as a person who, you know, Starbucks on every corner and, you know, food is something we all, you know, we're social beings and food is such a big part. It's very hard to sometimes maintain that fluid limit. And that is one of the biggest uh, things I hear, like, uh, they, they people don't go to parties because they don't want to be, um, you know, tempted <laughs> to eat the food or drink the fluid. And, you know, that's quality of life right there is enjoying it. So I'm all for it. As soon as you get it work, I'm interested to learn about the clinical trials. So let's tell us a little bit of, uh, about the clinical trials. Sure. So uh, a little bit of background. So a few years ago, we were uh, selected by the FDA to be a part, part of one of their uh, fast-track programs, as they, you know, colloquially called, where basically they work with us to identify the milestones that we have to meet for them to approve clinical trials and then ultimately guide us towards product approval. So that identified for us a engineering development roadmap, if you will, as to what we should do. And the key safety risk at the time that was identified was the likelihood of a blood clot that forms with this new membrane material. And we, we together identified that as potentially the biggest risk. Uh, and with the focus on safety first, we said, how can we make this work move fast in both a time and cost-efficient way? And the decision was made that we should structure the project so that we work on testing the filter, mechanical filter, first, and then showing that it is safe with blood, and then moving to the cells as a second, as a second step. So this meant that we focused a lot of our work initially on improving the mechanical filter, designing it to be as good as we can, and we moved into preclinical studies where we showed that we can run this off a animal's blood pressure with other need for anticoagulants, obviously no immunosuppression, uh, for as long as up to 30 days. So with that, we decided to uh, reach out to our institutional review board, which is the research ethics board that approves clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And we shared with them with all the data that we had, and they had some questions for us, and they came back to us and said, we would need to have a little more time to examine all the data that you have. So we gave them a little more time, which turned out to be more than a, a little more. It turned out to be over a couple of months. And they came back to me and, and said, you know, at this time it's hard for us to approve the first clinical trial until we understand that these materials that you're introducing are tested through a battery of rigorous tests that will give us more assurance the material is safe. So we uh, discussed with them, you know, what we might do, and they told us, "Here's a, you know, you have to do additional testing 
with this test and then we can consider it again, which we did. And they came back to me and said, look, this is the first ever time that this new membrane material is going to be touching human blood. So we would like for you to do a shorter term test as an external device and to do this external as an external device where the patient is going to be in the hospital and you're going to monitor the patient just for a short period of time. And if there's no adverse reaction, then we can look at moving the device as an implanted mechanical filter. So that's, with that information, we said, okay, let's, if we're going to go that step, let's see what needs to be done. So to do the test for the external device, I still need to modify the device design a little bit, but more importantly, or more time-consuming, is I've got to go through a series of additional tests that show that it's going to be safe as an external device. So that's what we are doing now. It's not what I had anticipated. It's not what I'd hoped for. But the Research Ethics Board and their first priority is safety, and they would uh, like this to be as safe, done in as, as a safe manner as possible. So we're doing uh, the requir- requisite tests. And then we'll get go back to our colleagues at the FDA, make sure those, the data is satisfactory, and then we'll go back to the Research Ethics Board. This is be well beyond the timeline I anticipated, which was to start this clinical trial at sometime in 2018. But looks like you know we're going to be pushed into late this year for getting approval. And then it'll be an external device. And one of the things that I love that you said is no immunosuppressant medication. And, you know, that causes problems in, in itself. So that that's just amazing. And I don't know if people who have high antibodies, which can't match a kidney very easy, it sounds like this would be an option for them if it comes about because, you know, you're not fighting a foreign object, right? It's- that's right. So as you know, I mean, immunosuppression has a number of side effects. So many people also who have got uh, who on the list have very high level of antibodies that makes it challenging for them to receive the organ. So by with our uh, chamber that's made out of this special silicon membrane, it actually prevents the body's immune system from attacking the cells. Okay. So that allows the patient to avoid the need for immunosuppression. That's amazing. Back in the early 80s, I was the first child to ever go on peritoneal dialysis in the state of California. And I'm so lucky that I had that option because I was running out of accesses. And uh, But one of the requirements, and I was a teenager, um, they recruited me often to be in the clinical research center so they could learn how PD affects children and, you know, help to get indication for it because it wasn't indicated in children at the time and all the little things that you have to go through to get approval for things. So would something uh, similar happen for this trial where people would be in a clinical research center and stay there for a few days or a week and you would monitor them and get the, the results you need to go back to the FDA to show that it's safe outside of the body? That's correct, uh, Laurie. So we are going to do this first test in a hospital setting, uh, most likely here at UCSF, which is in San Francisco, or my, my colleagues in, at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. And we'll be doing it where the patient is in the hospital, being monitored by nurses and physicians all the time in case there's any sort of adverse effect that they are there to catch it before it gets serious. Uh, hopefully there will not be any adverse effects. So with that information, we'll definitely then go back uh, to compiling the data that will then be looked at by the 
various uh, bodies. And I'm curious, like, how many patients do you need for the FDA to be happy? Is it 10, 100, 1,000? I'm just curious, like, what's the range? <laughs> no, it's a great question. So the question is, how many patients do we need? So the very first pilot study, again, I cannot stress how much emphasis the Research Ethics Board, the Institutional Review Board, put on to us saying that this is the first ever type of its device. Think about this. Right. We're well, making the first ever device that does kidney inside the patient. They said, look, everything may look great in outside on the bench top. It may look very good in preclinical testing, but you really have to go slow from their perspective, which is safety. And let's, you know, when I see it from that perspective, I can agree with much of that and say, how many patients? So that, you know, we're going to just do a handful of patients first. And with the external system, if that looks promising, then they'll, you know, my hope is that will be giving us sufficient comfort to think about an implant study. But it's very possible they will say, you know, do more patients and on external before you go to implant. But at least the discussion now is just a handful of patients on the external system. Well, that, that you know, that's doable. It seems like it's, uh, and I bet you have patients calling you saying, I'll, I'll do it now. I don't care about the risks. <laughs> And I I want it now. Yes, so you actually make a point. So we have been very fortunate with the outpouring of support and enthusiasm for the clinical trial. We have an active uh, Facebook page uh, that uh, you can actually put your name down as a patient on a clinical trial's interest list. I have to say it's not a wait list. It's not a uh, list of clinical trials, but or people who are going to be in clinical, it's people who are interested in the clinical trials. And we act, we have over 11,000 people on that list. And, and we try to use the Facebook to keep our, the community updated. But once we have the approval, we'll reach out again saying that, you know, we're looking for patients. Now, remember, the very first device we'll have, again, it's all about safety. It's not going to provide a therapeutic benefit. We just want to collect the data that right. we can mo- use for the subsequent trials and subsequent approvals. So you would be participating very much like you are, Lori, in the hospital setting uh, to advance the body of knowledge and support right. the clinical research that will support you know, the subsequent approval process. And so I'm just thinking about, is the surgery involved? Does it just hook up to a vein, an artery? Or how, how does that work? And it just kind of sits outside or does it hook up to your existing access? How do you envision that? Yeah, so the very first one is just to test is the material, this new material, silicon membrane, is this going to be compatible with the blood of a dialysis patient? And the safest way, talking with the nef- my nephrology colleagues here, my transplant uh, colleagues here, is best to do this using the setup that's already available for dialysis patients. What's that? Basically, a dialysis machine in the dialysis clinic, but where you're being watched by you know, personnel throughout the process. So the very first study is going to be very short, about four to six hours. Run the blood through our filter device, connected to dialysis machine. We, and the dialysis machine not only monitors the pressure, uh, but also can monitor for any blood clots, and can give alarms if they're necessary. So we're going to do this very much like you go to a regular dialysis clinic, hook up to your existing vascular access, except the blood's going to flow through this device uh, for the period of four to six hours, and then you'd stay overnight 
in the hospital, would analyze the blood, would analyze the device to see if there's any interaction between the device and the blood, and if hopefully, uh, if there's not, then we say this is successful and move on to the next step. That's it. Well, that's, that's very exciting, and this all sounds very expensive. So is the National Institute of Health writing big checks to you? <laughs> or if not, they should be. <laughs> yeah. So we've been fortunate that we've gotten some support from the National Institutes of Health. Okay, great. Okay. Uh, especially, yeah, especially the Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Biomedical Engineering. It's called the National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering. And they have supported us to support the research. But most of that money they've given us is to really look at the basic science of the filter and the basic science of the cells. But to really implement this into a product, we have actually relied mostly on gifts from the patient community and their friends and family that have allowed us to move this into preclinical trials. So we are not at a stage where we can go to uh, a large company and say, hey, take this and develop this because there's not much appetite for disrupting the existing model. So we've actually relied mostly on gifts to help us advance this to the next step. And if, if I may ask, like, what, what kind of funds are, are needed for this? Um, I think to give people perspective, because research is expensive, and and to do all the different clinical trials and all the different things, like if I was, if I just won the lottery, okay, of the eight hundred million Powerball, would you need all of that to make this happen, or more or less? I mean, <laughs> so I do, <laughs> I, I I do wish that you win the Powerball. <laughs> And I wish one of our one of the community members might win the Powerball because we we do actually uh, one of the challenges we have in the kidney disease community is we don't we actually are underfunded research wise. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, to give you a little sense of perspective, for every kidney disease patient we have in this country, we spend about thirty dollars annually on research. If you contrast that to cancer, we where we spend three hundred dollars per patient per year, right. it's really very striking. Right. It's striking because patients on dialysis have worse health than most cancer patients, as you probably know, especially in terms of survival. Right. And so, but, but still, there's very little recognition of the challenges of dialysis. So I think if we had somebody who had won the Powerball and was able to support this, that would make it such a big difference. To give you a sense of the cost, since that's what you're asking about. If I look, uh, one way to look at this is to see how say, new heart valves, new pacemakers, new stents for cardiovascular markets are developed. It typically takes for the process of commercialization, as they call it. Mm -hmm. So you've got the proof of concept, then you want to take it through the multiple clinical trials and all the way through to product approval. That's usually between five fifty to $100 million or more, depending on the complexity of the device. Now, with our partnership with the FDA, we hope that we can streamline some of that so it may not be as expensive $100 million, but it's probably not going to be $1 million either. Right. So typically, we have to think that it's going to be somewhere between, in the commercialization phase where investors come in, it's going to be somewhere between 20 to $50 million or more. Now, I think that at some point the investors will come in because there's such a great need. Right. But unfortunately, 
the we are such an earlier stage than most investors care, so we have to fund the research. To give you a sense of the research needs, we have to support, uh, uh, obviously, the scientists, but also have to support, you know, doing the preclinical testing. And over the last uh, few years, we've been fortunate that we've gotten gifts as small as $10 from patients and their families to as large as, as gifts from some people who have been able to afford it of $100,000 or more. But... There's a very few. We need that kind of support to move us closer and closer to clinical trials and through the first set of clinical trials, at which point I feel confident we can actually get the industry to step in. Well, and um, I'm I'm definitely going to make a donation, and I'm going to start buying lottery tickets regularly. I think all of <laughs> us out there can put a dollar into a lottery ticket and and uh, earmark uh, the kidney project. It, it is very difficult. Uh, a lot of people in the kidney community don't have a lot of resources, and and so it's it's you know co- considered to other illnesses and, and you know because it's such a chronic condition that y- you live with it forever <laughs> it's like cancer uh, to make the analogy is you either get better and go in remission or you don't make it and so um it's a mu- much different um community and i i totally agree with you but um it takes money to make these things happen so everybody listening you know go buy a, pa- a powerball ticket and uh you know leave dr uh, Shuvo Roy in your trust, <laughs> and and leave <laughs> no, RSN too. Bad. Okay, if you're if you're if you're doing the trust, you can you can also <laughs> leave RSN, but leave uh, Doctor Shuvo Roy in 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 your trust so he can help win the Nobel Peace Prize. Would it be the Nobel Prize? Well, it's it's probably too early to think about prizes, but I think what's really I think what's really important is that you know people think about. Increasing awareness. I think one of the things that I have found, and I am not a kidney patient, but and I only learned about the burdens of the patient community phases after talking to lots of patients, is just to go meet patients and increase their awareness and tell their friends and family members that, one, you know, this is a serious problem, but, two, there's something that can be done about it, and it could be just from a small gift or talking to your neighbor, talking to your friends and saying, did you know about this? And increase the overall awareness of the burdens, not just for me, but also for the whole community. So people are more inclined to support kidney disease research and kidney technology development. Well, I think the National Institute of Health has to step it up. I mean, come on, 30 bucks. I mean, you can't even get a nice dinner for 30 bucks. So, um, (laughs) you know, I mean, and then cancer gets 300 bucks. So we're all citizens. <laughs> so we need to get up to at least 150. <laughs> so I, I'm going to put that out there. If anybody from NIH is listening and Congress. Also, I would say, Laurie, you know, all the p- patients and their friends and family members can also write to their legislators and say, you know, support more uh, research for kidney and right. encourage them to support uh, appropriations that that. So NIH can direct them. Well, a very exciting initiative that's going on is called Kidney X, mm-hmm. and I think we'll. And if your community is going to look into it, uh, you'll see it all over the web. It's a it's a focused effort in trying to increase awareness and funding for kidney replacement therapies. Yes, I've um, we've definitely written some letters on that and tried to help support that to get the word out and it, it's just hard there's a lot of a lot of buzz going on a lot of illnesses wanting attention and you just got to be the squeakiest wheel and I think the community's done a much better job in in the past couple of years of getting that message through so hopefully um, it'll all work out well uh, uh, dr. Roy I am gonna start visualizing you winning an award for 
solving this problem for patients. I always think of what do you want the future to be like and how do you work better backwards. So I hope I'm invited to the award ceremony. And it's an award for all of us. I know, but but hey, somebody's got to take the statue. And you have been such a committed <laughs> person to to drive this. It takes leadership and drive to push projects like this. You got to get out of bed every morning and make a decision to get up and fight for this. And all the barriers that are presented, you have to figure out ways to get over them. And it's not easy. Um, and, uh, you know, I recognize that commitment and sacrifice that you've made to help, you know, me and my peers who have kidney disease. So uh, on behalf of, you know, my people with kidney disease, thank you because, uh, you know, you give us hope. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, also when I think about, you know, what you guys go, go through, you're the true hero. And my colleague, Dr. William Fizellat Vanderbilt, who actually got me interested in this field in the beginning, he reminds me all the time about, you know, we have to work hard, but every day the patients are the ones who are doing the hardest work. Yes. And, they continue, they, and they continue to inspire us. Well, and it, it's so true because I remember my conversations with Dr. Belding Scribner, I would go up um, and meet with him, you know, in his houseboat. And, you know, he made the, um, he was basically revolutionized dialysis because he made the the shunt, the Scribner shunt that allowed you to have access to the blood. And he was just so amazing. And the first word out of his mouth always was, it's about the patient. It was always about the patient. That was his goal. That was his life. And, he, you know, he, he was remarkable. So, uh, um, you know, you always think of those people who burn the midnight oil to make things happen and very, very grateful to people who do that. So if people want to learn more about this uh, initiative of the Kidney Project, uh, where can they go? The place to go is kidney.ucsf.edu, or you can go to Facebook and go to uh, you know facebook.com artificial kidney and you'll okay. get to our page and of course if you search on google artificial kidney you'll see us show up as well if you please go to the facebook and like the page you'll you'll be up to date with all the advances we are working on well that's terrific um well, we'll we'll do that. I know I'm. Um, I do follow it. It's just it's like how do you? I don't know what's up with Facebook, but they show me all kinds of stuff I don't want to see, and I'm like, so how do I see the stuff I want to see? And it's crazy. I see the same twenty people over and over again, and I'm like, how do I? Anyways, that's a whole other discussion, another research project, <laughs> but um, it gets you. a little frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Yeah. So. It's, it's, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, make sure Kidney Project's popping up in anybody that has kidney in their profile, okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And exactly. So that, we to everybody that Google as well. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for spending the time and explaining this, and I look forward to the updates. Thank you, Lori. It's a pleasure to speak with you, and I look forward to interacting more with you in the future and keeping in touch with the community. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.